Good morning. If you have your Bibles, as Dr. Platt would say, and I hope you do, go with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We are still in 1 and are going to be there for a little while longer. We are probably going to pick up the pace. I'll be preaching today, verses 15 and 16. Rusty will finish chapter 1 over the next two weeks. Uh, while Sarah and I are away celebrating our 10-year anniversary. And then, yes, amen. And then, uh, by God's grace, when we get back, we will begin chapter 2. Um, looking forward to chapter 2. I'm looking forward to the rest of this chapter, but uh, Rusty's going to get it, and not me. Alright, so verses 15... And 16, I'm not going to read all the way up. I just want to now read 15 through the end of chapter 1. And then we will, like we always do, work through just a couple verses at a time. It says this, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the glorious, I'm sorry, what, what are the to the, sorry, I've lost my place. There we go. The hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the work of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray again. Father, we pray as we work through these verses this morning that you would teach our hearts that you would sanctify us, that you'd encourage us, that you'd convict us, that you'd continue our perseverance, and Father, that ultimately you'd be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's go back and read verse 15 and 16, that's where we'll be this morning. It says, for this reason, Paul says, for this reason, and he's going to give us the reason now, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, so this reason, for that reason... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, I'm not going to give a long introduction this morning. We're just going to kind of jump right in. I want to remind you, so far in this book, what we have seen is that Paul has been explaining Christianity and its essence. Paul has just been explaining Christianity, how is it founded, how is it put together, what has God done from eternity past, presently, and going forward in the future. What has God done what is he doing? What will he do? What is Christianity? How is he's talked about things like election, predestination, redemption, 
a plan to unite all things in him. And then, of course, last week as we talked about this idea of sealing in the Holy Spirit. This idea of putting us sealed in the Holy Spirit. Now, last week, the question, I know there was a question somewhere in house gathering that was asked this. What does it look like to be sealed? How do you know that you're sealed? So if God has elected someone, then God has, prede- God has chosen someone to salvation. Then God has predestined that person to adoption of sons by redeeming them from the bondage to sin. He set them free. And then in that doing, then He seals them. He seals them for an inheritance that is to come. What is that sealing? How do we know how do, we, how do we look, how do we test ourselves to say, yes, I have been sealed, or no, I haven't, or oh my goodness, I need to at least question this. And we're going to look at some verses that, that even encourage us to question this. You see, it's very taboo, particularly among churches that believe in what's traditionally called eternal security, that once you're saved, you're always saved. It's kind of this, oh, you don't want to go there. It's, you're kind of, you don't, you don't want to talk about this idea of, of questioning whether or not you're a follower of Jesus or not. That's a terrible thing. And, and I want to say that the, the text, particularly a pastor we're going to look at later, would say no. Like, it's good to assess and to reassess And to reassess, am I of the faith? Am I sealed in the Spirit? This is a good thing. As I have worked through that in my own life, I remember as a young child, questioning whether or not I was a follower of Christ, and struggling with that, and kind of working through that and finding some resolution for a time. And I would say over the past few years, probably six, seven years, as I have learned of, of God's keeping, I've learned of perseverance, I've learned of sealing and these kind of things that God is, there is a regular assessment. But what's so glorious is that there's a, a regular affirmation. And I think God's people need to assess. And if they are God's people, God will affirm. Now, I do want to pit that against this idea that when we do walk without assurance, that we tend to be ineffective in the kingdom. We tend to be confused. We tend to, we tend to lose power, if you will. And so, I want to make sure that we're careful, because we're careful that we we don't get trapped there. But that's the beauty of God's Word both today, 1 John, 1 Peter, that He gives us things that we can look at and we can walk away going, yes, I have some assurance that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That I will inherit the kingdom of God. And so, as we approach the text today, I want us I will hope, I I pray that you will walk away today either knowing, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus and be affirmed in that or walk away going, I don't know. 
And may God send your heart searching, if that's the case. And may you find that Jesus is your Redeemer. Amen? Amen. All right. First thought here. Paul unceasingly thanks God for the miracle of salvation in the lives of his hearers. Paul unceasingly thanks God for the miracle of salvation. Paul is so certain of the salvific work of God or the saving work of God, the redeeming work of God in the Ephesians that he unceasingly gives thanks to God for this work. Look at verse 15 and 16. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Verse 16, what does he do? He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What Paul is about to talk about, what we're going to spend our time talking about today, causes Paul to not cease in giving thanks. So Paul, again, put this in context. Paul's been praising God for all these spiritual blessings that is ours in Jesus Christ as he recounts God's salvific work, God's saving work in verses 1 through 14. And then he gets to this, you are sealed in the Spirit. And then now, Paul's going to explain to us, what does this look like to be sealed? How do I know that I'm sealed? So the, to the question, how do I know that I am sealed? The answer is in the next verse. It's in 15. Paul's going to explain. Paul's now getting into, what does it look like to know that all these blessings are true for you? For me. And Paul here unceasingly thanks God for what he sees and for the evidence that is present. I just want to point out a couple basic things here. First of all, Paul does not cease particularly in thanksgiving to God. Paul doesn't thank them. Paul doesn't thank himself. Paul thanks God. Paul understands, again, that this saving work is not because they prayed some prayer or joined some church or got wet in a baptistry, what he believes is that this is God's work in saving the Ephesians. And I also want to point out to you that Paul has not lost sight of the miraculous work of salvation. And I would say for many years even in my own life, I have lost sight of God's miraculous work of salvation. I've been encouraged, even as working through Ephesians, like, no, this is amazing. That God would redeem some people. That God would redeem a person. That God could do that. Wow. He's, it's kind of like this. He's thankful that they are Christians at all. Like, I, I think we kind of like go, oh yeah, of course I'm a Christian. No, like, it's amazing. Like, all right, church, if I'm Paul, I'm looking at you going, it's amazing that you all are Christians at all. Right? Paul's looking at himself going, it's amazing that I'm a Christian at all. And of course, if you read Paul's writing, he would be more astounded by that than maybe even anybody else. The chief of sinners. Right? The Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul, I'm thankful that I'm a Christian at all. That God would give me a breadcrumb from his dinner table. Right? This is significant because I think this is an essential part of the Christian life. When we lose sight of the miraculous work of salvation, we're in a very dangerous place. And many Christians, I mean, I've grown up in church my whole life, 
Oh, woohoo, that person got saved. Awesome. No, they got saved. They were redeemed. God rescued them from darkness in the pit of hell and marked them for saving. That's amazing, right? We should not lose sight of that. Look what Jones says, Martin Lloyd Jones. He says, No man can truly be a Christian without rejoicing that others have also become Christian. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you can't even be a Christian if you don't rejoice that other people have become Christian. We should move on. No, 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 I just wanted to encourage you. Just Paul doesn't cease in doing this. I know this is obvious, but we don't want to overlook this. Paul doesn't cease in doing this. This is an on, like this, what's, what Paul is seeing, I'll put it this way, is an ongoing worship-inducing phenomenon. He is seeing this, and as he sees this, it is, it is provoking and producing unceasing thanksgiving in Paul's life. Paul is not getting caught up in the delights of this world that would crowd out delight in God's eternal work in a person's life. I kind of alluded to this last week that we oftentimes think that the only work that God has done is on the cross. His work didn't start there, though. His work didn't end there. And so when we think of someone being rescued from darkness, like even that is a terrible, not a terrible, but a, a lacking description of what God has done. When you look at that person that God has now made Christian, you can say that in eternity past, God chose that person. God predestined that person. God redeemed that person. God has sealed that person for an inheritance. Now God is working out that salvation in their life. God is sanctifying them. God is now going to finish all of that work and now God is going to put that person before the throne of Jesus Christ where he will then enjoy the presence and be like him as they see him for all of eternity. That's when, when Paul looks at this person has become a Christian. It's not just they were saved, but they were chosen, saved, sealed. And God's going to finish that. That's a miracle. It's a miracle. And Paul says, I don't stop thanking God for this in you. So Paul is thankful for God's saving work in their lives. But here's the question. How does he know that they are Christians? How does he know? How is Paul so sure of their salvation that he would unceasingly give thanks to God? So now just to make some broad observations to kind of help set the context in which we sit today. We live in a culture where many Many people, now this is a declining number, but still many people claim to be Christians. Even outside of the church, many people still claim to be Christians. Again, the social value for being a Christian is disappearing. So those who are Christians only because of social value, they're disappearing. And praise God for that. But still, many people claim to be Christians. We even live in a much smaller Culture, church cultural setting where many people claim to be Christians. So what is it that gives Paul such assurance? 
that these people are genuine, redeemed followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. Here is Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying to these people, I am so blessed, so blessed that I thank God without ceasing that you are Christians. I mean, Paul is basically telling them, you know, I'm not God, but you're walking in salvation. Thank God. That's what Paul's saying. You know, as we think about this question, how does Paul even know this? I'm reminded of people even that have walked in my midst in the past few years that even now deny that God has given us evidences to bring assurance of our salvation. That certainly that's not what 1 John is about. Or that would not be what Paul's doing here. But I believe we have assurance. I think this his point here. That we've been redeemed, we've been rescued from sin, and we are now eternally secured and sealed. There is evidence of walking in salvation. Now, certainly we we don't have perfect eyes by which to assess every little thing. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. That's where, that's where hope that God can keep us. Because He can. I mean, there's other parts to that. Right now, we're just talking about what are evidences that we can see that God has given us to bring about assurance. So the question is, what is it that comes to mind when Paul has closed his eyes and in prayer before God, thanks, thanking Him for the salvation of the Ephesians. What is it that is, in Paul's mind, is going, they're redeemed. How is it we know we are saved? How can other believers know that we are saved? Right? Because that's what's going on here. This is not just Paul thinking about assurance for his own salvation. It's Paul looking at the Ephesians going, Brothers, sisters, let me assure you of your salvation. That's what Paul's doing. Let me encourage you that from my perspective, I believe that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So how can other believers... How can they look at our lives and assure us of salvation? I just want to give us a side note real quick. I want us to be very, very cautious. When we are speaking about someone's salvation, like both as a receiver and a giver, just just a word of caution. Paul is indeed speaking underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, okay? And we're not Paul. On top of that. But God has also given us the body of Christ to help us discern such things. So this is a valuable thing for us to think about. But I just want to caution us that when we speak of someone's redemption, that that we just use our words wisely and we recognize that we, in receiving it, that that person's not God. They're not the Holy Spirit, even though God can use them. And at the same time, when we're giving someone assurance that we recognize that we're not God. 
but we can be led by the Holy Spirit. So I just want to be careful. So even like, I'm thinking like with our kids, right? Oh, yes, yes, no, 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 you're saved. Don't worry about it. You're good. I know you're saved. Mom, Dad, maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But Scripture gives us things that you can point to and say, son, daughter, read this passage. Look to these things. Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask God to show you. I see these things, and I hope that's encouraging to you. I hope that I, I, see, the, I see these things. But ultimately, son, daughter, this is, this is, God's giving you the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit to, us, to, to assure you ultimately of these things. I just want us to be careful. I, I could tell you a story. I had a person in my office a few years ago came to me, called me on the phone, crying, saying, I don't know if I'm a Christian. They come to me in my office. We sit down, walk through, walk through the gospel, and, I, and it appeared in that time that this person was saved, that they had just gotten saved, that God had just rescued them from darkness. Then this person proceeds to go home and hears from their parent, no, 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 you got saved back when you were this. And this parent's assurance was some sort of emotional experience they had sitting next to their child in service that day. And to my knowledge, this person that was at that point in my office is not following Jesus Christ today. Does not care about the body of Christ. It's not, it's not following Jesus. And so I want to say, like, when we think about such things, we've got to be careful. At the same time, Paul has given us, God has given us these things that we can look at and we can be encouraged by. I want to push us, though, ultimately not to trust each other even. We trust God and His assurance and His Spirit speaking, giving witness to our spirit. And at the same time, we have very real thanks here that God has given to us to encourage us as we seek to walk and follow our Savior, Jesus Christ. So if we are to have a solid assurance that we need some sort of test, okay? And that test, so Parents, this is good things to be talking about with your kids who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Parents, it's a good thing for you to do to yourself. And maybe even do that first. Okay? Paul provides this for us here. I want to encourage you to, if you want more exposition of this particular thing, we preached for a very long time in the book of 1 John. Go listen to all those sermons. Maybe while you're cutting the grass. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Let me read this for you. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. All right, so this taboo thing of, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not, and that's kind of not a good thing to talk about. Because, of course, you should believe in eternal security. You prayed a prayer. You joined a church. Of course you're saved. No, no, no. Paul says examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. 
Examine yourselves. So I, I would encourage each one of you, even this morning, examine yourself. Right this second, begin examining yourself as we work through this text. Here, I believe Paul really boils down assurance to two tests. Those tests are this. One, right belief. Right belief. Right belief. And we're, we're going to flesh that out, of course. Second of all, right practice. Right practice. Right belief, right practice. I want to remind us of what James chapter 2 says, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let me put that in the terms that we just said. So also right belief apart from right practice is dead. All right, first big thought here. Followers have faith exclusively in the Lord Jesus. How do I know? How do I help my kids know? Paul says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. How does Paul give thanks unceasingly for the salvation of the Ephesians? It is first and foremost because he has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus. Now here's the question. What is faith? What is faith? We talk a lot about faith. What is faith? I want to give you what I think Hebrews. We'll read read Hebrews here in a second. But what is faith? I think faith is this. If you want to write down something, faith is utter belief in something unseen as if you had seen it. Faith is utter belief in something like like belief in it is so strong it's as if you had actually seen it. That is there. Like you you might as well have seen it. It might as well have crossed before your eyes. Believe it to be true. Look at Hebrews 11. Now faith is the what? The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Alright, so faith Faith is not, and this is what our culture has equated and the Christian church has equated faith to be. It's not some hopeful, wistful, vague longing. It's not this, okay, yeah, I think that's going to happen and, and I'm hoping that's going to happen. And No, it's a, it's a hope for something to happen. It's a belief that something has happened and something will happen as if you had actually seen it happen. It's a conviction of things not seen. That you might as well have seen them. Faith is belief in something unseen with utter certainty. The confidence that is unwavering. Such strong belief that something is so true, again, just to say it again, that it's as if you had seen it with your own eyes. Church, we hear the testimony of the Scriptures. 
read the testimony of the scriptures. That Jesus Christ died on the cross. We just heard the testimony of the scriptures from Paul. That God has chosen people before the foundation of the world. He predestined them to adoption as sons. That he redeemed them through his, the blood of his son. And he's forgiven them of our trespasses. He's lavished on them all wisdom and insight. That in him we've obtained an inheritance. That we will obtain an inheritance. have been sealed in spirit. The question is this. Do you believe that to be true as if you could somehow see that with your own eyes? In faith that this is God. This is his doing. And it's, I'm just as sure of this happening as I am of this chair that I sit on. You know, many of us want all these existential experiences, you know, and things, and we want to stake our belief based on these things. I don't want to flesh that out right now. What happens when the experiences and stuff around you change? Your beliefs change. I want to encourage you. Just as he says in Hebrews 13, or Hebrews 11, verse 2, For by it the people of old received their commendation. It goes on to talk about the Word of God. And what was seen is not made of, out of things that are visible. We have testimony here from God's Word. Not that our experience and stuff are invaluable. I don't want to say that. But God has given us the Scriptures that don't change. And we stake our belief on the testimony of the Scripture. So what is faith? Faith is the utter belief in something unseen, as if you had seen it, according to Hebrews 11. The second thing I want to point out about this faith that Paul has heard about in the people in Ephesus, getting at the question here of, what brings about this certainty is this. Faith must always precede living. Faith must always precede living. Indeed, I would argue that faith always precedes living. Because I think if we talk about living first, then it's simply our living that our faith is in. And I would argue we also always live out our faith. The issue is whether or not our faith is aimed at the right thing. The way we live reveals where our faith is aimed at. Kind of like worship. We never begin worship. We just change the aim of our worship. Worship never ceases. We always have faith in things. The issue is whether where our faith is at. Here, as we talk about a test of our salvation, we need to make sure that we address faith first. Paul addresses faith first. I don't know if you, I, I mean, if you look at the church landscape, I know you, some of you guys are like other churches. I haven't paid attention to that ever. You're like, Matt, you keep talking about other churches. I, well, <laughs> yes, that's kind of how we do things. Uh, if you look at the landscape, even churches that, that I've been in myself, what we tend to do is we tend to talk vaguely about faith and really just use it as a gateway to talk about living. So we've got to have faith in Jesus, of course, and now let's spend the rest of our time talking about living. Let's talk, spend the rest of our time about, talking about doing. So a pastor might mention, have faith in Jesus, and then move on to living as if the connection between the two is just that minimal. 
But I would say, all of living is foundational. It is, finds its, its primary existence and motivation coming from faith. So I want to propose that faith in the Lord Jesus is fundamental, primary, and necessary for any living that is indeed faithful to God. So we have to talk about faith before we talk about living. So Paul says that the aim of our faith must exclusively be the Lord Jesus Christ. That the aim of our faith, that the place where our utter assurance as if we had seen it, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about this like exclusive faith in Jesus Christ, the conversation tends to begin and end with, you must not have faith in Buddha, Hinduism, Muhammad, etc. And that's kind of the end of that discussion. Right? So faith exclusively in Jesus Christ, that means don't have faith in these other people, and you're good. Many people, though, claim they believe in God. But this is not what Paul says. This is not a, this is not a general, I have faith in God, a higher power, a deity, uh, so on and so forth. And it's not, it's not enough to just not have faith in Muhammad, Buddha, or name your God. But for those who would claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to be right with God, for those of you who would say that, I want to ask you, how many times do you find faith in your own righteousness? How many times it is, I, I can make myself right before God? That's faith in yourself. That's not faith exclusively in Jesus Christ. Maybe another way to get at this of where are you finding faith in is where are you seeking salvation? Like what is it that if, it, if the stars align in this way makes me feel as if like heaven has come? What is that for you? Could it be anything from our kids to our jobs? This can be things that we find faith in apart from Jesus Christ. That when these things are fit together, everything is good. I want to propose to you that everything is good because Jesus died on the cross, because He redeemed your soul, because He has sealed you for an inheritance, and He will finish that. It's good. We place our faith in that. I'll give you another Martin Lloyd-Jones quote here. He says, a Christian is a man in who, and, and lady... A man in whose life and in whose whole outlook the Lord Jesus Christ is at the center. He sees everything in Him. Everything in Jesus. He starts with Him. He ends with Him. Jesus Christ has become the controlling factor everywhere. I want to encourage you to think through what kind of salvation are you preaching even to the people around you, to your kids, to your co-workers. I want you to think about with me for just a second. In Philippians, Paul is warning them of the Judaizers, right? What are the Judaizers? What are they doing? They're saying it's right to believe in Jesus but that you must be circumcised as well. 
So, to the people around you, your spouse, your coworkers, your church body, friends, family, the lost people in your neighborhood that you talk to, that you see, are you telling them that it's right to believe in Jesus Christ? And then by, you, by the way you live and where your faith is actually aimed at, you tell them that they must do something else as well. What is it your faith is in? So to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, though, is to have no faith in anything else. That's what Paul's talking about. This, your faith in Jesus, our Lord. It's also particular. I just want to make make explicit here. It's to have faith, no faith in self, no faith in self, only faith in Jesus, no faith in this world, only faith in Jesus. It's claiming that our righteousness is filthy. It's claiming that this world is helpless. It's claiming that I boast only in the cross. That's the only thing that's worthy of faith. And so to have faith in Jesus is to have faith in nothing else. You know, I think about this. If you're unsure whether or not you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what does faith look like? Where does your faith lie? Where does your faith sit? Where does your faith end? I want, I want to say to you, your problem is not fundamentally a lack of satisfaction or even a lack of joy or, or too much pain. Your problem and my problem is most fundamentally is, is sin. And that sin is most fundamentally faith in something else as your Savior other than Jesus Christ. You believe that to be right with God comes by some other means other than Jesus Christ alone. And Paul here is assured of their salvation because of their faith in Jesus Christ alone. But to have utter faith in Jesus is to have utter faithlessness in everything else that you might think could make you right with God. Faith in Jesus, both to you who claim to be a follower of Christ, and if you're unsure whether you're a follower of Christ, faith in Jesus is mutually exclusive with faith in anything else. They don't, you can't put two pieces together. Paul makes that very clear, particularly in the book of Galatians and in Philippians with the Judaizers. Instead, instead, what Paul would encourage us is that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for your sin so that you might be made right with God, that you can be forgiven of your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Repent. Repent of your sinfulness. And I, I, would, I hope, like in the context here, repent of your sinfulness expressed in self-aimed faith. Faith that's aimed at your ability to become right with God. And instead, have faith in Jesus. Remember, utter belief that Jesus died on the cross for your sins as if you had seen it done yourself. 
so let's, let's go forward here. Right. Let's talk about now what Paul here says. I, it's, it's really helpful. Lloyd, Lloyd Jones kind of brought this out. I didn't really see this as I was thinking through this. But Martin Lloyd Jones is so careful to like really look at every little word. And sometimes I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't, I just don't see that. Okay, I mean, not that he, I'm sure he's right and I'm wrong, but uh, you know. Anyways, he he says, look at the significance of Lord Jesus. The phrase, Lord Jesus. Oh, notice what Paul says, Lord Jesus. We must pay attention to every word, as I was reminded by Mr. Jones. Notice that he has referred to him so far as Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, or the Lord Christ Jesus. I think Paul intends for us to see that our faith is in the one who is the person and the only person who is the Lord and who is Jesus. Right? Let's, let's flesh that out for just a second. That he is God, the Lord, and that he is man, Jesus. Then, everything between Lord and Jesus is included. Everything. Faith in everything that is included in the phrase Lord, that's God, and Jesus, the man. Everything between his deity and his humanity is that which we have faith in. That he is the glorious one. That Jesus is the substance of the eternal substance. That he is the second person in the Trinity. And that he is the child in the manger. The one who lived a sinless life. The one who was buried and the one who rose again. Now, I just want to point out to you, okay? It's not natural for a man to have utter belief that this man, Jesus, is also the Lord of the universe. I mean, I, I know, like, we kind of grow up, or kind of, many of us grew up in church, and we hear our parents talking about that. He was Jesus, he was God, and he was man. It's not natural for us to believe that. It doesn't make any sense. So, like, when we go to our coworkers and stuff, and we talk, start talking about this, this man who was also God, like, it's not going to make any sense to them. And they're not going to get it unless God helps them see it. The natural man does not see this. But indeed, it, they are inseparable. You cannot come to faith in Jesus and then later come to faith in the Lord Jesus. No, you must come to faith in Lord Jesus. It's so both and. Paul says, I'm encouraged if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus. And if you have faith in the Lord Jesus. So, Christian, I mean, we have to ask this question, right? Is your faith exclusively in Jesus, your Lord? Is, he, is your faith in both Jesus and Lord? Because that's what brings assurance. Not just faith that some dude died on the cross. 
the faith of that dude died on a cross, and he's Lord, that he's both. I don't know about you, but as I was on my way to church this morning, um, obviously I usually come by myself. It gives me time to get a coffee or a mocha. Real coffee drinkers make fun of me. And it also gives me time to pray. And I find my heart struggling with various things. You know, and one of the things I am encouraged by when I come into here on Sundays, even before I get up to preach, like, reminded that he is both Jesus and Lord. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that as I hear you sing, as I hear Greg sing, as I see words on a screen, as I look at those truths, as I sing those, like, I need to be reminded that he is both Jesus and he is Lord. I forget. But are you utterly committed to him as Jones talked about? Or is your life begin and end with Lord Jesus? You know, it's okay to grow in your commitment to Jesus, to Lord Jesus, but until you are committed to Lord Jesus, there is no salvation, only damnation. You're committed to Lord Jesus. And then we grow in that commitment. Our commitment's not going to look perfect. We grow in that commitment. All right. We really do need to get to the second half of the sermon. So we should continue. So here's the deal, okay? Here's the deal. (laughs) I was at like 2,800 words for this one. And I think I've already added at least 1,000. So here's the deal. Paul, I think this is wonderful. Paul, if you think about it, Paul is actually now going to give us a test for the first test. Right? So this living is going to come from this believing. So it's kind of, if you will, a test for the first test, but it's also a test in itself. You can think about that later. Now Paul, the first test being the faith in the Lord Jesus at the center of our lives. The second test is evidence that He is the Lord Jesus at the center of our lives. But also both tests fit together to help bring assurance that you are either redeemed or you are not redeemed. So I hope do you take time this week, church, to think through is where is my faith lying? Where is it at? But here, the next thing we see is that followers graciously love the body of Christ. That followers of Christ, those who are redeemed, graciously love the body of Christ. Let's go back to the text. Verse 15, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your love toward all the saints. Alright, let's flesh this out. Your love towards all the saints. This love towards all the saints gives assurance to you of either salvation or not salvation. But I want to encourage you, this is not just a Pauline concept. This is not just Paul's idea. Look at 1 John 2, verse 9. It says, Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
1 Peter 1, 22-23, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. What's that? Faith in the Lord Jesus, right? And love one another. What's that? Love for all the saints, right? It's, it's almost like Paul and kind of like, almost like the same author. It feels like, doesn't it? Just as He has commanded us. Speaking of Jesus commanding us to do this. Alright, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about this love for the body of Christ. Love for all the saints. By nature, I, I, I want, I don't, we, we have to start here. By nature, we all hate one another. By nature, you would hate me. By nature, I would hate you. Okay? We, we, we can't overlook this. And you say, well, well that's, not, that's not true. Like, I have a general like. Well, Titus 3.3. 3. So what Paul says to Titus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. Wow. Hated by others and hating one another. That's pretty grim, eh? You say, well, I see people being nice to other people in the world. That's not hatred. That's Look, the world uses each other for personal gain. So if that means being what looks like nice to someone else, they'll do that if they can gain something from it. But you take the, the perceived benefit from someone who's doing something nice to someone else, and I guarantee you they will stop doing what they're doing. So even the most sincere philanthropists still find some form of personal salvation in the helping of other people. That's not love. That's hatred. That is the using of other people as a means to one's personal satisfaction. That's called selfishness. Our world calls that glorious. The Bible calls it hatred. But what happens here, though, I want you to see this. So if indeed it's true that by nature we will hate each other, but, which by the way, where do, we, where do we see that at? In the very, very beginning? Right? Cain, Abel, hatred. You even see that, I think, with Adam and Eve. Once their shame is revealed to them, once they now live in shame, why do they cover themselves because there's this hatred that is forming between Adam and Eve. Because they see the shame in each other, and now they're scared of each other. They've got to hide from each other. But Paul hears of the Ephesians having love for one another. Think about that. The Ephesians have love for one another. And Paul's going, this is astonishing. Like, this is amazing. They have love for one another. Wow! 
That's only because of Jesus. That's only because God's done this. Something must have happened. The only way you all could have love for one another, the only way you could be sacrificing for one another, the only way you could be caring for one another in a genuine, selfless way is, is if God has done something to rescue your heart from the hatred for your brother. We cannot love truly unless the Spirit is in us. Truly. I want to speak for just a moment. Uh, I want to talk about this idea of what does it mean to love one another? What does it mean to love the saints? What does that look like? Now, I have time to give this justice, but we, we talk about this all the time. I just want to refresh some of our hearts on this. We are oftentimes, our tendency as people is to flock with people who are very similar to ourselves. That's our tendency. Think the same way, look the same way, act the same way. Drive similar things. You know the phrase, birds of a feather flock together, right? We are attracted to those who are like us. It's in this, it's in this attraction, though, that we should be attracted to each other by. But it's in this, I want to talk about, it's in this like relationship, if you will, that we find forgiveness. We find this love for each other. And Paul is saying that this love for the saints, this love for each other, is proof that we must be one of the changed. It's these people that like to be together. They like to spend time. These people were liked above all else. It's these people, there's a special love for the saints. This unique thing that's going on. If Jesus says, you'll be known by your love for one another, right? You'll be known for that. I'll give you an illustration. I, I've sat, I've heard of two people in the past few years sit across the table from me and say, I have closer friends that are lost than that are followers of Jesus. (laughs) Paul here says that I'm encouraged I believe that you are redeemed because you have a love for the saints. There's something unique about that. Something special about that. Because if you love the saints, Paul Paul is saying that you must love God. If you love the saints, then you must love God. Think about it this way. If you love the saints, you must love God because God is the one who has made them. And so Christian, if you do not love the Christians around you, then you do not love God because God is the one who has made that Christian that you do not love. He's the one that has rescued that Christian. He is the one that has made that person into no longer a son of Adam, but now into a son of Jesus Christ, or a son, his son, one who would inherit the inheritance of the son, rather, as I should say, 
Jesus Christ. And notice what Paul says. He says, all the saints. Love for all the saints. Not just, now here, I, here's, sure, universal church, all the saints. Got it. I think what Paul intends to point more to is that within the church at Ephesus, within that body, you have a love for all of the saints. Not just the ones that you happen to get along with. Not just the ones that you happen to talk to the most. Not just the ones that happen to be the same age as you are. Or the ones who have the same interest. Which brings me to an important question. What does our community say about the gospel? As we look at right here, church in Beaver Creek called Renovation, what does our community here say about the gospel? What does our love, our apparent love for one another, say about the gospel? Robbie's reading a book right now called Compelling Community by by uh, author Mark Dever and um, last name Dunlop. This is the other guy's name. Uh, if you know anything about Mark Dever, he, he sells books, so his, his name is plastered on that book. Uh, but in this book, he talks about compelling community. What is, it, what is compelling community? And, and he talks about this idea of gospel-revealing community. That he, I'll, I'll read this. He says this, If we are not careful, we can create community that would exist even if God did not exist. So this love for the saints, Paul is saying, and, and as we think about this, we need to have what Paul is saying, love for the saints, not community that is based on anything else. Instead, community that is based on love for the saints. So you have to be careful because we can create this group of Christians, this gathering of Christians together that looks a lot like love for one another, but in reality is just love for self. You see, if we gather with other people simply because they have an interest that is similar to ours, then what you're doing is only feeding your own interest. You're not loving the saints. What would this be? So if we were to gather a group of people together around something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, think about this. Anybody in the world could gather a group of people together around something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, what does that say? I, I like in that book, he reminds us of the Tower of Babel. That you're building a community in order to show how great we are instead of how great God is. And so what is our community revealing? You see, when we come together united around the forgiveness of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, when Jesus is the center of our lives and He is the center of our community, this reveals the gospel. No other gathering of people in the world can do that. How would we be known to the world? By our love for one another. Why does the world look at so many churches and go, oh yeah, that's cool, we can do that over here. It's because they can it's because when they look at that church, they go, 
Well, they're just united around the same music, or they're united around the same skin color, or they're united around the fact that they all like to be cowboys, or they're united around they all like to hunt. I mean, what are they united around? Well, we can do that over here too. We're united around the fact that we all want to express our sexual identity in a particular way and have parades about it. We can unite just the same. Matter of fact, arguably, we might even be able to do it better. But the thing the world cannot do is unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ where all of the things that we tend to value no longer matter. But we come together seeing that who I once was is not who I am now, and where I am now is not where I will be the day He returns. That one day I will be like Him, and we are united around what Jesus did, not what I have done, not what I will do, not what I like, not what I care. We are united because of Jesus Christ. I want to say this. If you're having a hard time enjoying meaningful community in the church, it's not because of age, mental ability, skin color, or interest. It's because your desire for community is centered around an interest of yours rather than a gospel of Jesus Christ. That goes for all of us. I don't care what it is based on, but if you hang out only or even majority of the time with people who are just like you, then your community is probably based on something other than Jesus. This could be young people with young people, old people with old people, kids, people with kids with people with kids, whatever it is. I'm just saying, be careful that we're not communing together because we have like interests, but we're communing together because we love Jesus. Amen? Like what Jones says, some of us are very difficult and very trying and very unworthy. But thank God, because we are God's children, we are traveling together towards our heavenly home. And we know that the day will come when all our faults and blemishes and spots and wrinkles will disappear and we shall all be glorified and perfected together, enjoying the same glorious eternity. Let's commune Around that. Amen? (laughs) So Christian, does your action say that you love the body of Christ? Does the way you spend God's money, does the way you commune with each other, does the way you spend God's time, does the way you attend church gatherings, does the way you leave on Sundays, would your kids say that you love the body of Christ? Would your kids look at you and say that? Let me, maybe First Peter 1, 22-23. And by the way, don't stop with those questions I asked. There's a thousand more questions you can ask. But First Peter 1, 22-23 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. Let's talk about this for just a brief second, and we're going to land the plane. I alluded to this earlier, to the state to the statement that we are called to love one another. Okay, We're called to love one another. Now I want to show you that this imperishable seed is more important than any other relationship you have. I mean, think about what he's saying. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. What he's saying is that the other person's been born of imperishable seed and that you should love one another. What's he saying? 
your loving each other is based upon the fact that you've been redeemed, that you have a new heart, that you are now born of Jesus or born of God, not born of Adam. And the last thing I want to show you from this verse, that first Peter verse, is that again we are born of imperishable seed because faith in Jesus now expressed in loving each other. How does this happen? How does this happen? Go back to that first Peter verse twenty three. You've been born of this imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. Certainly Jesus is the Word. And this is the Word of God. How do we grow in faith in the Lord Jesus? How do we so these tests of assurance? How do we grow in faith in the Lord Jesus? Through the living and abiding word of God. How do we grow in our love for those born of imperishable seed? Those who are redeemed, how do we grow through the living and abiding word of God? Last thing I want to point out to you to bring you back to where we began. Paul says, for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks. Paul's, Paul has not forgotten the miracle of salvation. And when Paul looks at those in Ephesus, he sees evidence of the miraculous work of salvation in their lives. I just want to encourage you, Christian, even at this moment, if you're thinking, okay, yes, faith in Jesus, yeah, I struggle with, but faith wants to turn here, it wants to turn here, but, 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 but God leads me to repentance, and He leads me back to faith alone in Jesus, and, and then of course I, I stumble, but, but then God brings me back to faith in Jesus. You see that, if you see that, I want to encourage you, rest, have some insurance. When you look at the body of Christ and you go, wow, they've got wrinkles, they've got warts, they're a pain in the butt sometimes. They, some, they, this person gets to my nerves, this person gets to my nerves, like, or this person's not like me, or when I talk to him, I'm just like, you know, and you're like, ah. But, but I do love them, like I love them, and I, I want to know how to show how I love, I want to I know how to show that I, I, I want to ask God for patience, and, 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 I, and I know, and I, I want to love them, and I'm asking God to help me love them, then, Rest. Have some assurance. And then tomorrow, ask God. Test my faith. Show me. Show me. Show me is it true. And then on Tuesday, God, test my faith today. Show me. Show me that it's true. Show me that it's not true so that I can repent. And then on Wednesday, do the same thing again. But Christian Paul is saying, I thank God because this, I believe, is true in your lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we continue to worship this morning, Father, as we, as your saints, struggle to live for you, Father, I pray that you would give us assurance, but not assurance because, because of joining a church or being baptized or saying a prayer but assurance 
that the Word is living and active in our lives now. That I didn't one day have faith in Jesus, but that I have faith in the Lord Jesus. And Father, not because there's a saint here or there that I love, but because I love all the saints. Even with their warts and wrinkles and whatever else that might drive me crazy. Father, I still love them. And I want you to help me love them. Let's find our assurance in the things that you've laid out for us to find our assurance in. And Father, last prayer I would ask, Father, is that that you would make clear to us, each one of us individually in this room, today, for those who listen to the podcast, Father, that you would, you would speak directly to our hearts. You would speak directly and say, yes, you are my child, be assured. Or no, you are not my child. But come home. Repent. Believe in the work of my son Jesus. Trust in Him for your salvation. And come be my child, sealed for an inheritance. I pray that you would do that. And even in this room right now, even if someone's listening to a recording, that they would do this right now. Father, I pray your spirit would do what only it can do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with me?